Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Aaron Barker. I was shocked, shocked by this. I couldn't believe that someone would write a pop song about sexuality. (laughs) (laughs) That and more, but did you know there is another Risk live stream coming up on October 9th, that is Friday, October 9th, at 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 7 p.m. Pacific. We have another phenomenal lineup, and uh, the last one we did was one of our best. (laughs) We just keep knocking it out of the park with these live streams. I have to admit, you know, it is a strangely new format. We're still you know, getting used to it this year, doing shows this way. But we have had some really unbelievably unforgettable nights. And you've heard a lot of these remarkable stories. You're going to hear some today on this episode. And, you know, there's so much that also happens in the hosting of the shows, in the Q&A afterwards, in the reactions between the audience and us while we're doing it. They really are not to be missed, and we are doing them less often now. We might change to doing them just once a month. We, we, we've got a lot of material. We've got a lot of backlog now from all of these live streams we've been doing. But anyway, there is one that you can attend on Friday, October 9th at 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 7 p.m. Pacific. And to get your tickets, you have to go to risk-show.com slash tour ASAP. There's limited ticketing, and so it's best to get them right away at risk-show.com slash tour. Let me give a quick shout out to our latest Patreon member, Sam Tim, we always give a shout out when someone gives $25 or more per month to us over at Patreon. Thank you so much, Sam. And listen, folks, uh, let's see. We just uploaded last week the Don Collymore story, which is extraordinary. The week before that, I uploaded a 70 or so minute just me bearing my soul about everything that's going on with me right now psychologically. We've had so many phenomenal conversations with storytellers like Ray Christian. There's just so many bonus stories that are always being put there. There's the ad-free versions of the show. So there's a lot to find at Patreon, and it looks like it slowed down again. People you know, becoming members or upping the amount they're donating over there. And we're not out of the weeds. We were so, so thrilled that there was an uptick for a little while there to help keep risk afloat. This has been a very scary year. We have had to tighten our belts. We've had to slash hours uh, and, you know, give people less duties. We've had to, you know, make sure the stories aren't quite so long and start pursuing less stories and we've had to do a lot of things to kind of trim the sails and we've been you know having a heart attack for most of the year about whether or not we could keep risk running it looks like we're going to be able to keep risk running for a while now but we need your continued support so that we really recover and start flourishing and get back to where we were in 
2019, where we were like thinking of expanding things and making even more of the show. So please do become a patron of ours, a member over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, then you can go to paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the great Keith Jarrett behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Realizations. (laughs) I love it. I love it when I think of a word that we have not yet titled an episode before, and then it turns out to be one that's so obvious. The day that this episode is going on to the internet is October 6, 2020. It is our 11th birthday. October 6, 2009 was the day that the very first episode of Risk Ever went online. So, 11 years old, folks, and this has been the weirdest of <laughs> the, the weirdest of every year that Risk has existed. But we are very, 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 very much determined to live through this and be all the better for it. Be all the better for it in, you know, an expanded, flourishing, thriving Risk of 2021 and 2022 and and thereafter. But I have to say, we have done a fabulous job this year in 2020. A lot of extraordinary, extraordinary content has been featured here on the podcast, and it's meant so much to me to be able to, just to be able to come to this family, the Risk audience, and share as much as I've shared, both here and on Patreon and on our you know, discussion groups on Facebook and Reddit and everywhere. It's just been, I I swear to God, this community has been like a rock for me, sharing with folks on subtext. If you don't know about that, subtext is this way that I send out texts maybe every other day about what's on my mind or what's going on behind the scenes or little interesting tidbits about a particular story or questions the staff might have for people. I just, you know, text stuff out. And you see the text and you can reply to me and only I'll see your reply and then I can start chatting with you via text. So if you're someone who enjoys texting, it's a fun way to engage with us. You just go to join subtext dot com slash risk show your first two weeks are free and then you can decide whether or not you actually want to go with it so yeah that's a lot of fun 
I had an interesting experience. I've got a new therapist finally. And in my session last Friday, I decided to share with him the same story that I shared at the last Risk livestream show, which doesn't matter if you weren't there. It was just an interesting experience to share a story that I had prepped to share in front of the audience and then to get his reaction. He said, it was really interesting, like there's so much included in that story, but there's one key thing missing in it, which is compassion toward yourself. And it really got me thinking of, gosh, how could I reframe that story and think and feel my way through it? You know, revisit those memories and think in terms of having a little bit more empathy and compassion for myself as being the person who made some mistakes and did some stupid things in that story. It's just, I think, just a reminder, I, the, I am, it never ceases to amaze me, this process, the storytelling process, and how therapeutic it is, how fascinating it is to run your stories by friends or family members or people that you really trust, you know, people whose insight you think could be really illuminating for you. We certainly are always engaged in that here on the show. We do that. We do that when we're coaching our storytellers. We'll ask or we'll make comments like that comment that my therapist made to me. And yeah, and we're also always very curious to hear from you, the Risk listeners, when stories had some sort of therapeutic effect on you, you know, when a story actually amounted to a little bit of a shift in your own life, just hearing another person's story. Another thing that always just never ceases to amaze me is how people who have listened to the show for five years, eight years, 11 years, will have heard me speaking like this, asking people to pitch us their stories for years and years and years and years, and then be like, well, I guess there is that time that, and then mention something absolutely extraordinary that's unlike anything we've ever featured on the show before. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that decade you heard me calling for people to pitch us your, their stories. That one that now I want to get on the podcast as soon as possible, that you, you could have pitched that to me 8, 9, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, and, and that would have worked. That That's kind of what I meant by pitch us your stories. <laughs> but of course, I also understand. I mean, there are some pretty big incidents from my life that 11 years in, I have never gotten around to telling a story about because, you know, it's quite a process going back into your memories and, and, and digging it all up and getting it out there. Uh, you know, last year, fella pitched us a story for Halloween, our Halloween episode, and it was... Instantly, like one of the very scariest stories I have ever heard anyone pitch us here on the show. 
and it was too late to do it for last week's Halloween, but we were like, we want to record it as soon as possible anyway, and he's just gone. Like, that person is just, like, out of here. Like, just, we cannot get him to share that story with us, and it makes you kind of wonder, like, oh, gosh, what happened? You know, exactly what happened there. Um, so, yeah, but I understand there could be any number of reasons that you might be holding on to something. But uh, I don't know. By all I can say is it's just your stories. <laughs> all right. This is an interesting episode this week. We have two stories that were shared at our live streams. And then we have one story that was shared by one of you, one of our fans out there who recorded a story, a little anecdote for us as well. Now, that's going to be Audrey Avera. You've heard Audrey on the show in various ways. She often sends little crazy kooky recordings in that become parts of interstitials or that sort of thing. But before that, we're going to hear from Aaron Barker. Oh my gosh. I love Aaron Barker so very much, and I admire Aaron Barker so very much. She's the artistic director of The Story Collider, which is one of the finest storytelling shows out there in the world. They have a podcast as well. They do Story Collider in various cities. If you don't know the Story Collider, they have stories where something about science has to come into play in your story. So a lot of scientists, but then a lot of ordinary people who just happen to have stories where there's a scientific connection tell stories on Story Collider. So if you don't know, when we feature stories that were recorded at our live streams on the podcast here, you can often hear other people reacting to the storyteller. That's because we leave the microphones of the other storytellers and some of the risk staff on so that it's not just a person speaking into a void. So anyway, you can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron H. Barker, and here she is now for the story we call Rockstar. That's R. A-W-K-S-T-A-R-R. Hey, everybody. So, uh, growing up, my family was very Christian, and kind of the way that only West Virginians really can be. Uh, so just to give you a sense, we were not on the level of the people who dance with snakes, but we were on the level of people who don't think the people who dance with snakes are that weird. We would just sort of <laughs> see them at the grocery store and be like, hey, Bob, how you doing? How are the snakes? <laughs> and what this meant for me as I became a teenager is that my dad would inspect every book I brought home to make sure it was of good moral quality. There was a long list of TV shows that I wasn't allowed to watch, ranging from the Drew Carey show to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And he would inspect the liner notes of every CD I bought to make sure that the lyrics were clean enough. My Nirvana album and my Spice Girls album were both casualties of this. It's probably the only thing those two groups ever had in common. 
But I was frustrated by this sometimes, but I also thought my dad was probably right. In kind of that way where you get mad at your parents for not letting you have pizza every night for dinner, but also you understand that they're probably making the right, responsible choice for your well-being. So I contented myself with jars of clay and newsboys until one summer at Girl Scout camp when everything changed. I was making a decorative candle holder, as one does at Girl Scout camp, when all of a sudden I heard the sound that changed my life forever. It's been one week since you looked at me. (laughs) That was the moment when I fell in love with the artists known as the Bare Naked Ladies. (laughs) So... While all my fellow Girl Scouts were crushing on NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, I was crushing on middle-aged, overweight Canadian men, which was very disturbing for everyone who loved me. Their names were Steve, Ed, Jim, Kevin, and Tyler, and I naturally referred to them this way by their first names as though I knew them personally. And I talked about them so much that two of my little sister's first words were Steve and Ed, which my mother was delighted by. (laughs) I memorized all of their vital statistics because that's what you do when you're a real fan. So I knew the names of their kids, the names of their wives and siblings, the locations of their tattoos, their birthdays and astrological signs. And this stuff was hard to figure out back then. This was before Wikipedia. This took some work. And every time one of their birthdays rolled around, I would dutifully call up the local radio station and request one of their songs in their honor and be mocked mercilessly by DJs and morning zoo crews. (laughs) I would spend hours every day after school on the Bare Naked Ladies message boards, uh, (laughs) writing about my interpretations of their songs and comparing set lists from different shows. And because this was before YouTube, me and the other fans, we would sit and watch our TVs until an interview with them or one of their music videos came on. And we would quickly record it on our VCRs and we would make copies of the videotapes and mail them to each other. (laughs) I still can't believe that as a 14-year-old, I gave my address out to strangers on the Internet and I was not abducted, (laughs) fortunately. There was an email address circulating on these message boards that was known in the community to belong to Stephen Page, the lead singer of the Bare Naked Ladies. And every now and then, somebody I knew would write to him, and very, very rarely he would respond. I never wrote to him because I knew that if I ever did, it had to be something important. It had to be good. Because the thing was, I desperately wanted to meet the bare naked ladies, but I also was terrified of the prospect of actually doing so. I applied to be on that show Fanatic on MTV where they surprise fans with visits from their heroes, and then I lived in constant fear that they would make my dream come true. <laughs> I just couldn't figure out what I would say to them. What could I possibly say to them that would let them know instantly that we were soulmates? that I was the kind of funny, clever person that they wanted as their third guitarist and or wife. (laughs) And I worried about my age. I was concerned that at 14 years old, they might not be willing to consider me as their potential collective life companion. There was just one thing, one sliver of doubt 
that was keeping me from full, unwavering, unreserved fandom. And that was when I bought their new album, Stunt. There were two tracks on it that I knew my dad would not want me to listen to. The first one was track six, Alcohol, was about being perpetually drunk. And the other one, track eight, In the Car, which Stephen Page wrote about dry humping his high school girlfriend in the backseat of a car. And I was shocked, shocked by this. I couldn't believe that someone would write a pop song about sexuality. <laughs> I took it very personally. There was this uh, time in youth group when Pastor Jeff had us uh, answer this questionnaire about what kinds of physical affection we felt were acceptable before marriage. And it was this big, long list that had everything ranging from hugging and kissing to oral sex and sex. And there were these boxes next to each one, and we were supposed to check off which ones we thought were okay. So after we'd all filled it out, Pastor Jeff said to us, if you checked any of those boxes, you have already committed the sin of lust in your heart. And so I knew that if I listened to these tracks, I would be committing a sin in my heart. And so when I was listening to track five, as soon as it ended, I would jump up right away to skip track six. If I zoned out and I accidentally heard the first few notes of track six, I would start to get this panicky feeling like I was going to hell. And I shredded the liner notes of the album to make sure that my dad wouldn't find it. And I figured that as long as my dad didn't know, and as long as I never listened to those tracks, maybe it would be okay. But after a while, the burden of secrecy wore on me. And I started to think, why does Stephen Page have to include those tracks on this album, this otherwise perfect album? They were the only <laughs> things holding me back from being able to be a true fan. And so I decided that what I had to do was I had to write him an email. I had to tell him what he was doing, putting his fans at risk of potential hellfire. And I thought it was the right thing to do, and maybe I would even win another soul for Jesus. Who knew? <laughs> so I wrote this email, and I explained to him that, you know, he wasn't thinking of his younger fans when he put this out. Maybe he didn't realize that he was putting us in mortal danger of hell. <laughs> uh, my email address at the time, by the way, was rockstar725 at aol.com. And Rockstar was spelled R-A-W-K-S-T-A-R-R, -R, the way that a 14-year-old definitely would spell it. I agonized a little bit more over the wording, and then finally, I hit send. And I figured, Stephen Page, he probably won't even write back. You know, but at least that I knew I did the right thing. I'd spoken up. And what more could Jesus really ask of me? And then the next morning, I opened my email And I had a reply from Stephen Page. And for a minute, I felt this flash of elation go over me. Stephen Page wrote back to me. And then I remembered what I had written to him. And all the blood trained out of my face. And I wish that I had the actual email to read to you today. But believe it or not, I don't still use the Rockstar 725 email address now that I'm an adult with a career. And it was deleted a long time ago. But I can tell you it was very polite but very cold. 
And the gist of it was that he was not necessarily interested in being a role model for young Christians. <laughs> and he didn't appreciate me telling him what he could and could not create because he was an artist who needed to express himself through music. <laughs> it was the worst possible outcome. I was neither the third guitarist nor a wife. <laughs> I had sort of met Stephen Page for the first time, and he thought I was an asshole. <laughs> I was so upset about it that I didn't want to tell anybody, but one of my friends talked me into sending her the email, and when she read it, she said, if I got this email from Stephen Page, I'd probably kill myself. <laughs> and I did not come to that conclusion, but I did find myself in a conundrum. On one hand, I had Stephen Page, and on the other hand, I had Jesus and my dad, who, to be honest, I often conflated in my mind. And all three of these people were so influential to me, and I didn't know what to do. But when I thought about it, I just could not bring myself to condemn Stephen Page. It just didn't feel possible. I loved him too much. So I decided to listen to the tracks again, for the first time, all the way through, with an open mind. And believe it or not, I did not descend into hellfire upon listening to them. In fact, I actually kind of liked them. And now that I was listening without panicking, I was picking up on certain nuances of the songs, and I, I was appreciating them differently now. And I started to think, if these songs aren't so bad, what else is maybe not so bad that I've been afraid of for so long? So I started reading all kinds of books, books by authors like Robert Cormier and Judy Bloom, and then eventually David Sedaris, books that I had to hide under the mattress in my bedroom. These books did not corrupt me. They didn't turn me to the devil. They just made me think about people and ideas and things that I'd never thought about before. And I started to realize that faith is about more than not saying bad words or not having lustful thoughts. God doesn't care about those things. God doesn't give a shit. He doesn't even give a shit that I just said shit here on a live stream. He really doesn't. Those things are too small for God. God cares about murder and war and genocide and powerful people committing harm upon vulnerable people. I've read a very long book all about these things, so I know. <laughs> And what he doesn't care about is whether or not Stephen Page once dry humped his high school girlfriend in the backseat of a car and later wrote a song about it. And he definitely doesn't care if a 14-year-old kid listened to that song on her disc man in her bedroom. The God that I believed in was not a God of shame. The God that I still believe in is not a God of shame. Thank you. I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. Teenage savages go wild. In a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness, you're opening the gates of your mind to the Prince of Darkness.
It's been Foxelated. Here I come, baby. I'm coming to get you. I was 19. I was hanging around my apartment with two of my other friends. They were also 19 and we lived in a suburb of Dallas. And we decided we would smoke pot, which was typical. And we were bored, so we decided that we would go to Dallas, drive into the city and just hang out and see what happened. It was common for us to do in those days. So that's what we did. We were high, we drove to Dallas, we had a great time. And then one of us realized we had a friend who was having a birthday the next day and this friend was old. She was turning 30. So we decided we would do some sort of over the hill themed birthday for her and we found a balloon store. In the store we bought a couple of Mylar balloons that said over the hill, they were funny, but we also bought a giant 30 inch balloon that had a tombstone on it and it said RIP. We thought our friend would really love this and we were brilliant. We smoked a little more pot and got back to Kevin's tiny Honda Civic and figured out there was no way that huge balloon was going to go in that car. But we devised a plan. Maggie would sit in the front seat. She would hold the two smaller Mylars. Kevin would drive and I would sit in the back seat and hold the big balloon out the window and roll the window up on the ribbon so that it wouldn't fly away. And we also weren't going to take the highways home. But we actually didn't know where we were going because we didn't have GPS in those days or even a Mapsco with us. So at one point we were on this small street in Dallas and we were going slowly. We had no idea where we were. Traffic got slower and slower. But oddly enough, the cars coming in the opposite direction, they weren't going as slowly. And they seemed to be looking at us and gesturing. And we thought they were saying, hey, you're so awesome. And we were like, we know, we're so awesome. We've got this big balloon. And um, we eventually realized they weren't happy. They were flipping us off. And they were saying things like, fuck you. What do you think you're doing? And we had no idea what was happening. We were so confused and really like, hi. At that point, I looked out the front window, which Kevin should have done, but, you know, he was driving. <laughs> he didn't do it. In front of our car, there was another car. In front of that car, there was a limo. In front of that limo, there was another limo. And in front of that limo, there was a hearse. We were in a funeral procession, and we had a giant R.I.P. balloon hanging out the window. We were so freaked out, like, what's gonna happen? They're gonna know we're high, what do we do? <laughs> Maggie, she was always the voice of reason. She said, let the balloon go. I thought that was a great idea. So I rolled down the window a little bit, let go of the ribbon that held the balloon, and it flew up, and we watched it, and we were silent and high. 
and we watched it. It went up, up, and out of view. And as it got out of our sight, we looked at each other and just burst out laughing. I mean, what could we do? It was crazy. <laughs> and then Kevin, he took the very next turn that we could possibly take, and we made our way back to suburbia and I remember we laughed hysterically the entire time maybe we had to even pull over we were laughing so hard but you know if that family of the deceased that day happens to listen to risk and remembers a group of 19 year olds who had a giant RIP balloon at their beloved's funeral procession we're sorry it was the 80s we said yes to drugs back then <laughs> is Risk. This is Oingo Boingo behind me now, and we just heard from Audrey Avra, who is a Risk fan, who sent in that little anecdote. You, too, can send in an anecdote anywhere from three to four minutes long, and if you need any tips on how to do that, you can just email me at kevin at risk show.com before that we heard from well we heard an interstitial from another one of you a risk fan named ben stern reached out and said he was interested in creating an audio interstitial a sound collage to follow a story on the show so i said sure why don't you give a shot i'll send you a recording of aaron barker's story and see what comes to mind for you. See what creative juices it gets flowing and send us something. So he sent us that fantastic little interstitial there with the, um, the preacher who was so unhappy about rock and roll. Did you know that one of the easiest ways you can help Risk out is to go over to Apple Podcasts 
you know, iTunes podcasts. And give us a five-star review and say some nice things. Leave a little review there. That really helps a podcast out when they get a lot of reviews over there on iTunes and people can find it and see. And then the algorithm, you know... People will be like, oh, you like whatever it is, This American Life or The Moth or whatever it is. You might also like this show. Uh, So if you can, please do go on over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes Podcasts, whatever you call it, and give us a five-star review. That would be a huge help. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, our final story on this week's episode is another really beautiful story by Darylise Lyons. Darylise was on the show last year. She told a truly unforgettable story at Caveat, uh, another one of those stories that um, people had a lot of mixed feelings, triggered a lot of different emotions and all that sort of thing. Here she's back now, and you know, Darylise now has her own podcast, It's the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. Beautiful, vital, and important conversations and stories about the diversity of our human family here and how important it is that we are embracing our empathy and openness and understanding toward one another. So here is Darylise now. This is a story about an abusive relationship. Here she is now at a recent Risk live stream show with a story we call Bullets on the Floor. In the winter of 2009, in the middle of blizzard season, I'm released from my 18th inpatient eating disorder treatment facility. For the past decade and a half, I'd been binging and purging and starving and taking a hundred laxatives at a time until I'd be laying on the bathroom floor writhing in pain and in agony, feeling like I was exploding from the inside out. 
My eating disorder started because as a child and an adolescent, there were a lot of things that happened that should have made me angry at my family or angry at the world, but instead, I got angry at myself. When I get out of treatment in 2009, and I'm not binging or purging or destroying myself with laxatives, I don't have a way to express my self-hatred. And then I meet someone on Craigslist. Lee has a mohawk and a tattoo sleeve. And on our first date, I ask her, what did you do last weekend? Not much, she replies, taking a French fry and eating it. I took a baseball bat to some douchebag's knees, but don't worry, he deserved it. <laughs> Lee is five foot two inches to my five foot seven and a half, but she's done time in prison and she owns a gun and she knows how to fight. I find her anger incredibly alluring. I think if I can learn to be angry like her at other people, maybe I can stop being so angry at myself. Early in our relationship, she tells me things like, you know, Dara, I love you, but if you ever cross me, I'll hurt you. And um, other endearing things like, if you ever cheat on me, Dara, don't tell me because I'll fucking kill you. We fuck a lot and fight a lot. Despite my best intentions, I don't ever learn how to be angry at other people and stop being angry at myself. But what I do learn is how to provoke Lee's anger so that it's her hurting me instead of me hurting me. But I find that Lee is too overall affectionate and too sporadically cruel to satisfy whatever self-destructive impulses I have. So I end up doing the one thing that she's told me not to do. I cheat on her, and then I tell her about it. I don't expect her to kill me. I expect her to punish me by leaving. But instead, Lee punishes me by staying. For months and months, she looks at me with daggers in her eyes. She calls me things like slut and whore, which don't bother me all that much. But then she starts calling me fat, which is pretty much the cruelest thing you can say to someone who's in early recovery from anorexia and bulimia. The strain and the stress and the emotional pain of being with someone who hates me more than she loves me literally twists my intestines into knots. My colon shuts down and I don't shit for over four weeks. I'm admitted to Jefferson Memorial Hospital here in Philadelphia and the doctors put me through all manner of tests and then finally they go in and suction the waste out of me via colonoscopy and the next day they come in and I'm still kind of laying in bed groggy and they say to me, Dara, you have Hirschsprung's disease and you need to do this intensive bowel retraining program and also you need to avoid stress. So as soon as they walk out of the room, I know what I have to do. <sighs> I call Lee and I tell her that even though I still love her, I need us to be over. We can talk about this in person, I say, but I just needed to tell you before I lost my nerve. Fuck you, she says. You're dead to me. And then she hangs up. And I sit there, stunned, but also oddly excited because almost losing part of myself has made me realize that I don't want to be the target of abuse anymore. I don't know what life would be without being the victim of my own rage or someone else's, but I know I want to find out. A week and a half after I'm released from treatment, I get a text message and it says, I'm picking up my shit tonight. When I get there, you better not be fucking anyone, because if you are, I'll kill you and I'll kill him. 
In the year and a half that Lee and I have been together, she's left a lot of things at my place, but there's nothing of mine at hers. I left a t-shirt there once, and when she got mad at me, she shredded it and then used it as cleaning rags. It's pitch black when I hear a car pull up outside. Lee doesn't knock. She doesn't ask for permission. She lets herself in using her key. I gave it to her a few months into our relationship when we were fucking more and fighting less and when we seemed happier together than apart. Her eyes are icy. She's dressed in this long black trench coat. Do you want to talk? I ask her. Not now. She storms upstairs and slams the door. I can hear drawers opening and closing, and I just hope it's her stuff that she's throwing around and not mine, but I don't go upstairs to check because I'm afraid of her, and I don't want a confrontation. I hear the bathroom door open and then close, and the toilet flush. I hear water running. There's drops on porcelain, and then the bathroom door opens again, and she comes back downstairs, storms outside, puts her belongings in her Toyota Scion. It was a purple car. I don't know who drives a purple car, but she had a purple car. And then she storms back in again. I'm sorry, I say to her. And she takes her key off the key ring, and she throws it at me, and it hits me in the chest, and then it ricochets, and it falls to the floor. And we lock eyes for a minute. And her eyes are steely, and they're cold, and they're cruel. And in the past, no matter how angry she's gotten at me, every time she's looked at me, there's been love intermixed with anger. But this time, all I see is violence. And then Lee hits me. And I call out for help, and I fall to the floor, and I'm protecting myself, and I'm screaming, and I'm squirming, and I'm trying to get away from her, and I feel her blows raining down on me. And then my neighbors are banging on the wall between apartments, and they're threatening to call the police, and Lee yells, fuck you, and then she storms out of the house, and she slams the door behind her, and I hear her getting into her car and peeling away in that purple Toyota Scion. And I'm just left in my apartment, aware that I didn't fight back, but I did try to shield myself. And that somehow feels different. And I know I don't want to inflict anger on my body anymore. And so I go upstairs, and I go to sleep. And in the morning, around 6 AM, I wander out of bed, and I'm groggy. And I go to the bathroom, and I sit on the toilet. And I feel something beneath my feet and it's cold, and it's hard, and it's deadly. And I look down, and on my white tile floor, there's five bronze bullets. And until that moment, I thought Lee might hurt me, but I never thought that she would follow through on her threat to kill me. And I'd never realized how much I valued my own life. And so I call the police, and they come out, and they collect the five bronze bullets, and they put them in this plastic evidence bag, and then they fill out a police report, and they give me all the papers that I need to go get a temporary restraining order against her. And I do, and before the temporary restraining order can become permanent, I get a phone call from Lee. She's been crying. I guess you found the bullets, she said. And I can hear in her voice that something deep inside her has shattered. And she says, you know, I planned on killing myself that night. And if the bullets hadn't fallen out of my jacket pocket onto your floor, I would probably be dead now. 
And so I asked her, so you weren't planning on shooting me? And she says, oh my God, no, Dara. I couldn't ever do that to you. I love you. I don't want to hurt you. And I tell her that I don't deserve to have her hit me or leave bullets on my bathroom floor. And she cries harder. And we get off the phone. And I realize that there's been a fundamental shift, that somehow being together has taught Lee how to get angry at herself. And somehow being together has taught me how to get angry at someone else. And you know, Lee left those bullets on my bathroom floor nearly nine years ago now, and I imagine that they're probably still sitting in a police evidence bag somewhere that maybe they've been disposed of. But whenever I start to feel myself drifting into old patterns of behavior or old patterns of emotion or self-hatred, I take a deep breath and I envision those five bullets, bronze and shiny on my white, cold tile bathroom floor. And that's all it takes to remember that instead of being rageful at myself, today I give myself full and unconditional permission to get angry at somebody else. We could be the healing When you're feeling all alone We could be the reason to find the strength to carry on In a world so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We could be the healing We can be the flower in the gun What would I say to my son or to my daughter If they came and asked me about these days What kind of reason could I give for all the hate that's standing in the way? Wish I could tell them that nobody's gonna judge them And every stranger on the block is gonna love them No bully in the world could ever hurt them But I can't say that today That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Michael Franti and Spearhead with Victoria Canal behind me now. And we just heard from Darylise Lyons. Like I said, do not miss Darylise's podcast, The Demystifying Diversity Podcast. Really important and really inspiring. Please join us. Come to the next Risk live stream you heard two stories on this episode that were recorded at risk live streams and the next one is happening on october 9th at 10 p.m eastern that's 7 p.m pacific and you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour 
Did you know that you can order a little video from me at cameo.com slash thekevinallison? I can create a video for you a couple minutes long. Some of them I go on longer and just chat for a while. <laughs> Some of them I sing someone a song or do a little sketch or, you know, sincerely speak. I, I can do anything you would like if you uh, go over to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison and you can order from me a video wishing someone a happy birthday or just hello or whatever it might be. They're super, super fun. Another thing you can do is you can have me coach you through a story or have a consultation with me about your own storytelling show or a memoir you're writing or a solo show you're preparing or any sort of a documentary where you need to get personal stories from people, any sort of project where I can consult you around about storytelling. Or some people also come for consultations about sexuality and BDSM and kink. So that you can find at kevinallison.com. And of course, you know that on your podcast player you have in this episode, you can look at this particular episode, the notes, and see a bunch of links to all the ways that you can interact with us. Our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. You can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash risk show. You can visit the whole of Risk at risk-show.com. Our book is at theriskbook.com. All of our classes. We have so many storytelling class opportunities, whether it be a one-hour masterclass or a two-day workshop with other people present or uh, downloading our video workshops in your own time. It's all at thestorystudio.org. And we have such a wonderful faculty that a lot of people make a point of taking workshops with each member of our faculty. We also have corporate workshops available at thestorystudio.org. And like I mentioned before, if you'd like to text back and forth with me, you can go to joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Cause we could be the Flower in the